Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, can Colombia stay on the path to peace? My guest at the Global Education and Skills Forum in Dubai was Juan Manuel Santos, President of Colombia from 2010 to 2018. He achieved what many had thought impossible, ending 52 years of war with FARC guerrillas. He inaugurated a Truth Commission to investigate crimes against civilians and was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016. Now he's a member of the Global Commission on Drug Policy and teaches at Harvard and Oxford Universities. But Colombia remains deeply divided, and in recent weeks, his hard-won peace has looked especially fragile. Some say Mr. Santos brought an imperfect peace, failing to bring justice and ignoring the security threats of other dissident groups. The new president, Ivan Duque, is challenging part of the agreement for being too lenient to the FARC. And in January, after an explosion blamed on the National Liberation Army, or ELN, killed 21 people in Bogota, thousands took to the streets to march for an end to violence. I asked Juan Manuel Santos how he assesses his legacy now. There is no such thing as a perfect peace agreement. It's a negotiation and all peace agreements have imperfections. And this peace agreement was the most comprehensive, most profound peace agreement that has ever been negotiated. I think it's irreversible. We have uh, some way to go in, in order to implement what was agreed uh, because we were very ambitious and of course many people uh, think that we have not advanced uh, fast enough and other people as always happens it happened in Northern Ireland, it happened in uh, South Africa, it happened in Salvador uh, every peace agreement where you draw the line between peace and justice you have people from one side and from the other who are not happy so what's the balance of that now? We're going to dive a, a little bit into what, what's happened subsequently. But if you're being frank with, with yourself and, and with us, peace and justice, how much has had to be traded away? Well, we think uh, we drew the line in the ideal uh, uh, point of uh, finding enough justice to allow peace, which was the uh, objective since the beginning. And I think this is happening uh, we already have a special tribunal. We are the only country that has negotiated peace under the umbrella of the Rome Statute, the only country who has put the victims in the center of the solution and their rights to justice, to reparations, to the truth, and that is working. So peace in Colombia with the FARC is irreversible, and uh, we're struggling to construct the peace, which is many times more difficult than simply achieving or uh, signing an agreement to end the war. But let's look at an angle of that which helped drive the, the conflict and had absolutely terrible consequences in Colombia and beyond, and that's the cocaine trade. And yet, according to 
the UN report at the end of 2018, Colombia was producing more cocaine than ever in its history. Why so? And why was it so difficult to make the end of that conflict, or at least the retreat of the, the conflict in, it, in its most serious form, go along in tandem with reducing the drug trade and dealing with it? The peace agreement is giving us, for the first time, a solution, a structural long-term solution to the problem of planting coca. And why do I say this? Because for the first time, we are going to be able to, and we're doing that, to give the coca peasants an alternative. If we had no way to give them an alternative, they would keep on planting coca. Right now, we put in place, thanks to the peace agreement, a program whereby uh, we are giving them an alternative, we're subsidizing uh, their transition, and that is working. We have to allow for uh, the program to work, but this is the only way we can reduce permanently uh, the production of coca, because we've been trying to do it for the last 40 years, and we have failed. Uh, this is a, a battle or a war, and I think I, I share this with the economists, that uh, the world declared more than 40 years ago and that has not been won. So it, had been, it has been lost. So we need to have new ways, new approaches, uh, uh, different from the traditional way of fighting drug trafficking because uh, the way we have been fighting is, has been a failure. Let's stay on that for a second. What would you do in concrete terms now differently? And you can perhaps look at solutions that are more difficult than they are when you're in office. I, When I was in office, I was uh, uh, the one who proposed to the world a new approach to the problem of drugs. And that uh, ended in the special session of the United Nations in the year 2016 to address this problem where unfortunately we did not make as much progress as we wanted. But now uh, at least many countries in the world are approaching the drug trafficking and the problem of drugs as a public health problem instead of a, simply a police problem and uh, we are seeing countries that are legalizing um, the marijuana trade which I think is is the right way to go. You passed the deal with FARC at great personal political cost having had a honeymoon period really which went on for quite a, a long time of great popularity and very good economic performance in Colombia. You left office as one of the most unpopular Colombian presidents. It's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Yes, because uh, I have always uh, thought, and that has been my way of uh, approaching government, you do what is correct, not what is popular. Making peace is always more difficult than making war. And uh, when I was elected the first time, I was elected with the highest margin ever in the Colombian politics and the Colombian elections because I was very successful making war. To switch to a peacemaker, and they warned me, was going to be very difficult, and I was, I was going to become very unpopular, as uh, has happened to many peacemakers. But history uh, will decide, and it's deciding now, because my ratings have gone up in the last uh, year tremendously without me having to speak one single word. So I think the people will realize that uh, the correct decision was to make peace. Thousands of Colombians have been marching in Bogota, holding 
vigils for peace, they do seem to fear that your deal is under threat, even if your personal legacy looks assured with that group of, of people in your country. How do you assess the risks at the moment? No, I don't, I don't think uh, that the peace is at risk. Uh, I think that many people would like to put a, a, a stop to the, to the implementation of the peace process, but we have, a, fortunately, a constitutional court that is defending the peace agreement that has said that for the next three presidential periods, no government can approve any reform that goes against the implementation of the peace process. And the Constitutional Court is the highest court that we have, and uh, we have to respect that, and I am quite confident that we will continue with the normal problems that any peace process has, especially one so comprehensive and so ambitious and difficult as the one in Colombia. So violence has fallen overall, but it's still a very high death toll, isn't there? Social leaders, trade unions, human rights activists, over 100 assassinated that we know about, uh, according to UN figures in the past year, former FARC uh, targeted after leaving. Is this just a lot more fragile than you would have hoped at this point? All peace processes have a backlash. And we, we are having a backlash after 54 years of war. And uh, the people who thought that uh, the day we signed uh, every single assassination and every single uh, act of violence was going to end, well, they were uh, too optimistic. We, we knew that there is a transition period where we have to be very effective in trying to bring the violence that always comes after a peace agreement like the one we signed. But that sounds a bit like 1989 and the, the dawn of some hope then that we could, could come to an end with guerrilla conflicts. I, I'm trying to say that there were times in Colombian history no, when it maybe looked as if you were making a great leap forward. No, there's no comparison. No You're comparison. shaking your head. No comparison with the 1989. Uh, Colombia was uh, on the verge of being declared a failed state. Uh, you had uh, big drug cartels that were almost uh, uh, all-powerful and, and the state could not uh, control them. And uh, today's situation is very, very different from the one we lived through uh, back in these terrible periods of the drug cartels and the paramilitaries. We, we now have peace with the FARC. We don't have paramilitaries. And the big drug cartels have been dismantled despite those figures on the drug trade? No, yes, but the drug trade will never disappear as long as uh, people in London or in New York consume. This is a business that, uh, unfortunately, is driven by the demand. And uh, where there is demand, there will be supply, especially if prohibition uh, increases the uh, profits for the mafias that control the business. I just read the last biography of Winston Churchill, and I... I loved an anecdote that appears in this biography uh, when he went to the U.S. through Canada during Prohibition and uh, he asked for a drink and of course they said this is prohibited and he, and he said this is a very strange country. These huge profits that are made with the liquor sales, here they allow these profits to go to the mafias. In uh, my country, and the, in the U.K., we uh, give those uh, profits to the Treasury. 
and I think he was quite right. Your successor, President Duque, has refused to sign uh, the bill which governs key hearings, the so-called special jurisdiction for peace, the JEP, that you wanted to have established. It was, I suppose, in some ways akin to a kind of truth and reconciliation idea. Do you want to sort of tell us where you think that got to? The agreement is signed and we have to abide by the agreement. Uh, it's, uh, it's, that's what agreements are signed for, for people to comply with them. Of course, many people say, well, there's an imperfection here, there's an imperfection there. But that was what was signed, what was agreed. And of course, if there are suggestions to improve the implementation of the agreements that are accepted by all parties, uh, those suggestions will be most welcomed. But it's more complicated than that, isn't it? Because we're seeing such legal challenges and a kind of constitutional challenge around what should happen there. I guess there's a, there is always a difficulty of a bridge from one era into another. No. So what is the right approach? No, the right approach is to abide by what the courts say, in this, in this case the Constitutional Court. That's the instance where these uh, differences are decided. And if the Constitutional Court says that uh, you have to abide uh, with, uh, by the agreement, then you have to, do, you have to uh, respect what the Constitutional Court says. And I think that's what democracy is all about. Sure, but it seems that Mr. Duque wants the FARC to be subjected to rather harsher scrutiny and possibly harsher sentencing, uh, and that, that he was fulfilling, as he sees it, a, a pledge to do that. Is that reasonable? No, it's not reasonable because that would be a change in the agreement. And uh, the Constitutional Court says that there cannot be any changes in the agreement for the next three presidential periods. So nobody can suggest uh, any changes in the agreement that uh, are not uh, agreed by all parties. He says he doesn't want to terminate the agreement, he wants to improve it. Well, if he wants to improve it, then sit with all the parties concerned and negotiate, but he cannot impose a change in the agreement because that would be uh, contrary to the spirit of the agreement. And the underlying suggestion is from your successor is that the agreement is too friendly to the FARC. It lets them off too lightly. Uh, that is his point of view. Uh, other people um, think differently. Always when you make this type of agreements, you have to draw the line between peace and justice. And in every single agreement, you find people on, in either side that are not uh, happy and that use politics for political reasons to criticize. It happened in Northern Ireland, it happened in South Africa, it happened in Salvador, it happened everywhere. Uh, this is a, a part of uh, the game of peacemaking. Let's talk about other dissident groups in Colombia, particularly the National Liberation Army, the ELN. You opened peace talks with them, I think, about 2017, around that, that time, towards the end um, uh, of your leadership. <laughs> That's also particularly difficult and fraught at the moment because it complicates the relationship with Venezuela and the role of Venezuela providing a haven for the organization. Well, yes, Venezuela provides a haven to, to this organization. We had uh, advanced quite a bit uh, with this uh, group to sign a ceasefire. Um, the new government uh, decided not to continue this, uh, this dialogue, and um, uh, that's an autonomous decision of the new government. I don't, sh I don't uh, agree with it, but uh, 
they are, have all the right to, to do what they're doing. Uh, I hope that uh, the decision that they took uh, will not uh, produce more violence in Colombia, uh, but we will have to wait and see. What has been the impact of the Venezuelan crisis at this particular point on, on Colombia? About a million migrants produced by this terrible situation in Venezuela, your neighboring country. Yes, I had to cope with that. And uh, what I did was to open our hearts and our arms to the Venezuelans because the Venezuelans had been very generous to Colombia when we were in trouble. And uh, that's why uh, we put in place uh, a policy whereby we gave uh, the Venezuelans uh, special treatment, uh, access to our education system, access to our health system, uh, training for uh, the Venezuelans to get jobs. Uh, we have uh, roughly 1.3 million Venezuelans now living in Colombia. And this is a terrible problem for us, of course, but uh, we have to uh, try to cope with it uh, and hopefully push for a rapid and peaceful transition in Venezuela. Rapid and peaceful transition, rather elusive in Venezuela. Your successor, President Duque, has recognized Juan Guaido as the legitimate president. Do you share that view? Well, uh, what I share is that uh, we need a golden bridge for the regime because otherwise uh, there will be violence. And violence is the worst of all outcomes because there are many, many people who are armed in Venezuela. Uh, violence will have a terrible impact on Colombia also, not only in Venezuela and also for the rest of the region. You've talked about a golden bridge. It's a memorable phrase. What do you mean by it? I mean a dignified way out for the regime. Um, if people expect uh, the regime to simply give themselves up, this is not going to happen. They, they will prefer to die uh, in battle than uh, giving themselves up to end up in a jail like uh, Noriega. This is reality. And therefore, you have to sit down and negotiate a transition. And to negotiate a transition, you have to include the major stakeholders. And the stakeholders that could produce this Golden Bridge are countries like China, like Russia, like Cuba, the US, and Latin America. Something has to be negotiated with the regime and with the opposition in order to allow for this transition to be rapid uh, and peaceful. And we hopefully would have uh, elections very fast if this transition is negotiated. You sound like you're giving quite a large role in this to China and Russia, two global powers not often seen as the most effective peacemakers. Why are you so trusting about that? Because they have uh, expressed their interest in Venezuela. They have expressed their opposition in the Security Council to the resolutions about Venezuela that the U.S. has tabled. Uh, and they are players in this, uh, in this uh, uh, situation because they have invested a lot of money uh, and they have special relations with, with Venezuela. That's uh, a fact. Uh, it's not simply a theory. And what should happen? Where, where should the Golden Bridge lead? I mean, are we suggesting that Mr. Maduro ends up in... China, in Russia, that he's out of the region, or what would constitute the end of the bridge? I have an example, which was the first time that the Ortega brothers in Nicaragua negotiated their way out of power. When the Ortega brothers negotiated their way out of power, they said, okay, I will leave power and, and uh, 
they would go to live in, in some country and uh, their political party will maintain a certain degree of uh, control of certain institutions or a percentage of Congress for them uh, to feel that they're not going to be simply wiped out. Something of that sort. What should happen to Mr. Maduro? I'm not uh, in the best uh, position to suggest that. Uh, it's uh, something that between uh, Maduro and the opposition and the Venezuelans should decide. And on American intervention, what would be useful and what would not be useful? Well, the U.S. should maintain a prudent role there because a too active American intervention is counterproductive. That's why we created the Lima Group in order to make this a Latin American initiative that would, in a way, try to suggest solutions and way out. It's better if it's a Latin American than if it's American or European. But of course, the Americans and Europeans are very much interested in also finding a peaceful and rapid solution. And of course, their support is most welcomed. And does the character of Donald Trump play into this? Often an erratic leader, you're smiling. I mean, what, what impact does Donald Trump being president have on this crisis that maybe wouldn't be the case if it were a, another Republican or Democratic Party president? Well, I had the opportunity to uh, talk to President Trump a few times about this situation. I said um, that uh, military intervention was the worst way out, um, that uh, nobody in Latin America would accept that. And I think uh, what we have seen in the last weeks uh, is a proof of what I told him uh, more than a year ago. And uh, hopefully uh, the U.S. could play a constructive role rather than a very proactive role. It sounds like you want the U.S. to stay quite far in the background. Well, uh, the, the phantom of the U.S. intervention is still alive in, in Latin America, so simple... Uh, mention of this is a possibility uh, puts many Latin Americans um, in a, a very worried situation. We must talk about what you devote a lot of your time to now, and that is climate change, biodiversity, a particular, and I sense quite personal attachment, particularly to kind of to the health of the marine en environment. What are the priorities for you here, and particularly with your background of it's half a century of war and its consequences for physical landscape must be in your mind. I, I do consider that climate change is probably the most important challenge the world has right now. Uh, we did a lot when I was in government to try to protect uh, special biodiversity that Colombia has. Colombia is probably the richest country per square kilometer in the world in terms of biodiversity and uh, we have uh, very, very rich areas in the marine environment that we also protected. When I arrived, there were about 12, 13 million hectares of protected areas. When I left the presidency, we added uh, up to 43 million hectares that were protected from mining and agriculture. And uh, I think that we have to go do a lot more, not only in Colombia, uh, of course, in the world, because no, no one country, like in the drug trade, can uh, fight climate change by itself. 
Finally, I must ask you, as we're here at an education uh, conference here at, uh, in Dubai, education is not something where Colombia has really moved the dial in terms of its outcomes, since I think you're raising your eyebrows, so you might be about to challenge me, but I looked uh, at the PISA data again this morning from the OECD, and you know we still see Colombia in many ways such a connected, such an energetic country, still lagging behind there on what it is delivering across the core subjects. Uh, any self-criticism on that, or what next? And what next? I will, I will tell you uh, how we have progressed. Uh, in, in my government, for the first time in the Colombian history, for the last uh, five years, education has been number one in our budget. And as you very well know, the priorities of any government are showed in the budget. And so we made education our first priority. We made education free access to public schools free for every children, every boy and girl in Colombia. In three or four years, you cannot correct a, a whole education system, but I think the progress that Colombia has made in the last uh, years has been a tremendous progress, and this is what the OECD says. I'm not saying it. It's the OECD says Colombia has made tremendous progress. Of course, that we have a long way to go yet, because we come from way, way be, uh, down from where we were. So we're making progress. We need to do a lot more progress. Juan Manuel Santos, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for uh, having me in your program. And of course, we'd love to know what you think. How can Colombia balance the competing demands of peace, justice and politics? Write to us, radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. And if you're not yet a subscriber, the first 12 issues are just $12 or £12 if you go to economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in Dubai, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.